0: Hey, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy. This is podcast number 176. And in today's episode, I sit down and talk with Dr. Bronnie Thompson. So Bronnie is amazing. Uh, She was originally trained in occupational therapy in the early 1980s, but later studied psychology and completed her PhD in health sciences in 2014. She works in uh, pain management, musculoskeletal management, case management, and health safety over the years. Uh, In 2001, she started teaching postgraduate courses in pain and pain management uh, through the University of Otago, based in Christchurch. She's a New Zealander. She's a Kiwi. And she began blogging in 2007, and if you want to look up her blog, which I highly suggest you do, go to healthskills.wordpress.com. And a woman like this, such a broad base of knowledge, kind of had to figure out, okay, what are we going to talk about today? And, And we sort of talked about living well with chronic pain, and she... Goes through the process by which she interviews her clients and how she helps her clients see that they can live well with chronic pain. And and spoiler alert, um, at one point I just kind of lost it. You'll you'll see what happens. It's uh, it was a really emotional interview. Uh, She obviously struck a chord in me, and you know I put this on social media afterwards, but sort of midway through, I kind of break down. I start crying. I'm like, what is happening? Why am I doing this? Should I edit this out? Should I not edit it out? And I decided, what the hell? I'm not going to edit it out. I mean, it was just, she, she really sort of hit upon what it's like to have chronic pain, And I myself had had chronic pain for so many years, five or six years of sort of chronic neck pain. And the things that she was saying, and I'll I'll get into into my uh, chronic pain situation, maybe in a a later podcast. Maybe I'll do one this month. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. But um, she just really hit a chord with me. And at one point, you even ask her to see if I'm okay, because we're doing this on Skype so she can see me. And Anyway, it was really unexpected, and, but it turned into a really beautiful interview. And I hope that you, you all really enjoy it, and because I know I certainly did. And I feel like I've learned so much from, from Bronnie, and, and I just know everyone else will as well. So I've, I really, I'm, I'm really happy with this interview. And it was so great that we're splitting it into two. It was such a great interview. It was so long. So we're going to have Bronnie today, and then we're going to have Bronnie again next week on the 19th. So part one today, part two next week, both fabulous, fabulous talks. Um, So thank you to to Bronnie for giving up that much of her day. I really appreciate it. Um, Okay, so on to the Healthy, Wealthy, Smart Community Board so we have uh, this week, this weekend, the seventeenth is uh, this Saturday is the PT day of service, Global PT day of service over twenty five countries involved, hundreds of PTs. So good luck to everyone. and um, I'll definitely be talking about my day of service that we're doing here in New York through New York cares. and maybe I'll uh, do a little podcasting while I'm there as well. We'll see what happens. Um, so good luck to everyone going out for their PT Day of Service this Saturday, October 17th, so that's really exciting. Now, the other exciting news is Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart is giving away, I'm going to be paying for the registration fee for one lucky either DPT student or physical therapy assistant student to go to CSM, the combined sections meeting in February of 2016 in Anaheim, California. So if you want more information about how you can win your uh, early bird registration paid for, go to uh, the website, uh, podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, and go to the tab... um, scholarship. And in there, you will find all the information and what you need to do to enter. And I will be picking the winner on November 11th. I'll be picking the winner live from the PPS conference in Orlando, Florida. Maybe I'll have a special guest pull the winner out of a hat or something like that. I'll figure it out. Um, and if you want to double down your chances of winning your uh, registration fee paid for for the CSM in Anaheim, then go to Entropy Physio. That's entropy-physio.com and go to Cabernet Conversations CSM Scholarship. Doctors Sandy Hilton and Sarah Haig are also going to be giving away a scholarship, and that's where I got the idea. I totally stole it from them. Um, And again, if you're a physical therapy student or a physical therapy assistant student both can win. So, make sure you either go to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, click on the tab scholarship, find out what you have to do. It's super easy, really. It's really really easy. Or go to entropy-physio.com and find out what you have to do to enter their contest win. So you have double the chances to win. So it's all very exciting and just as an FYI, if you win uh, my contest, after CSM, you will be coming on this podcast as a guest to talk all about your experience. So I really look forward to this and, and um, I look forward to picking a winner. So anyway, on that note, let's get to today's wonderful and if not slightly emotional podcast with uh, Bronnie, Dr. Bronnie Thompson. Thompson. Hey Bronnie, how are you? And thank you for coming on the podcast today all the way from New Zealand, so thank you so
1: much. It's a pleasure, and it's a beautiful spring day here, a bit warmer than probably in New York. Well, I don't know, it was like 75 today. Convert that to Celsius. Oh man, I don't know. (laughs) No, let's
0: not. (laughs) I don't know. I used to actually know that pretty good in my head, but now I don't know. Um, but let's just say maybe around the same No, it was, it's been beautiful here We had a really crap weekend. It just rained and rained and rained all weekend. So I'm um, today was beautiful and when I you know, I see patients in their home So I'm outside all day walking from one person to the next to the next so oh, a rainy absolutely. day is Really not fun. So this was great, but thank you for for coming on and like the weird part is, is like technically you're in the future because right now we're recording this on a Tuesday but for you it's
1: actually a Wednesday it's Wednesday
0: it's it's halfway through Wednesday right right (laughs) and we're just sort of finishing up the day here on Tuesday it always just like it's so trippy anyway (laughs) (laughs) thanks for coming on um of course uh I have heard so much about you from Sandy Hilton and Sarah Haig and you were in Chicago over the summer right? Spring, summer? Um, it
1: was June, yeah. June, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah over it was the summer.
1: Wonderful. Yeah. I fell in
0: love. <laughs> oh, with Chicago? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. But just lovely and lovely people. Yeah. I really loved yes. meeting Sarah and Sandy.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, agree. So <laughs> but they, I mean, Sandy said after you spoke that she really, it had such a profound effect on her that she really kind of was looking at her treatments in a different way. So I'm really happy to have you on to talk about what made such a profound shift in an already very accomplished physical therapist like Sandy Hilton.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it was just a wonderful opportunity to meet with people who are also passionate about um, helping people from a person-centered practice rather than imposing something on on people. Sandy and Sarah are looking to help people find their own way and identify what's important to them. And so I think some of the things that I talked about are really about doing that and also realising that we are people that makes us people with a patient who's also a person and that connectedness makes a huge difference to how we think about the way we talk with people
0: yeah oh, a- a- absolutely and we're going to get into all of that in a little in a little bit, but first let's talk about you so <laughs> you started out uh originally trained as an occupational therapist, so why did why why did you want to become an
1: occupational therapist? Well, it went back to school days and I actually applied for physiotherapy and occupational therapy and the um the occupational therapy, really, because I had an opportunity to go to the hospital, and we spent a day off in your final years looking at other occupations. I, I walked around with a physiotherapist, and I spent some time with the occupational therapists. And the physios were doing um, lots of oh, they were doing wax baths and um, ICU treatments, and I thought that was really exciting. I thought that. that making real difference in in people's lives. The OTs got to play with lots of gadgets and bits of equipment and were bridging between the hospital and the person's own home. And I thought that was a really nice area um, to work in. So I applied for both of them. And um, the simple fact is the occupational therapy acceptance came first. Okay. Right first, So there you go.
0: <laughs> okay, well that's that's a reason. That's a good reason.
1: Yeah. And so
0: how long were you working strictly as an occupational therapist before you uh, went back and and got uh, a PhD?
1: Um it was a it's been a fairly lengthy process. So in the late 80s, I graduated in 83, 84. Um, and I Worked until the late 80s doing basic OT, some hospital-based work, and then I did some work in a work rehabilitation centre that sadly closed down. And when that happened, I had just started developing a private practice to look at return to work for people. What I found was that most of the people that I saw had chronic pain as their main limiting factor for their return to work. And so I decided to learn more about pain management. Um, I had a little bit of an insight because I, I have fibromyalgia. At that time, way back when I first graduated from OT, a patient and I collided mid-door, back pain, um, lots of treatment, didn't help. Eventually got seen by um, Dr. Mike Butler, who's a rheumatologist, who said, there's nothing we can do for you. And my heart just stopped mm-hmm. like, what I've got to live like this forever but what he also did was give me um, the book the challenge of pain by Melzack and Wall and so and this was well before I started doing anything in pain management so I read the book and got really interested in the fact that I could help myself so I did I started doing things again and lost that fear that this pain means something terrible and then I didn't really look at pain until um, a few years later till I started to work in this work rehab um, centre and pain was this big problem and I had just a little, tiny little bit of pain knowledge, not not nearly enough, and um, and thought, well, I'd better learn a bit more about it. At that time, I then moved to Christchurch to work. Um, so I'd been living in Auckland and moved to Christchurch and worked with... Um, Dr. Nick Kendall, who's a clinical psychologist who's one of the developers of the Yellow Flags document, that's the acute low back pain psychosocial risk factors, and started to do the return to work component in the Irwood Pain Management Centre and needed to learn more about pain. So that's how I started to do psychology. (laughs) And then I always wanted to look at this interesting group of people who who we don't see, Um, and my partner's one of those people. He's got ankylosing spondylitis, Mm. but he's never let that get in the way of doing his climbing up and down hills, being a high country firefighter, um, doing the man, diving, doing all the manly things. Mm -hmm. And so when I saw saw him and I reflected on the people I was seeing and realised that there was there are a group of people out there who just seem to get on with life and that sowed the seed for um, how can I understand this group of people and that's my PhD. Got it. That's um, a long
0: ride. <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean I think when you have such personal connections to, to your subject matter – You know, in in this case, to chronic pain conditions and to to painful conditions in general, it's just such a great motivator to kind of push you forward and to learn more.
1: Yeah, I think for me, I'm a a reader and a learner and a let's find this information out. And in the mid to late 80s, there was an enormous explosion of self-management, psychological approaches to pain management that there were opportunities that prior to that had never been really considered. Mm. Um, Pain management was, well, pretty much like we still see, an awful lot of pill-popping surgery. Um, I had physio-interferential and I had ultrasound. I mean, I had everything (laughs) that physios do, um, and none of them made any difference. And it was only when I came to a very behavioral approach that I found I was – actually learning how to do things for myself so it was a really fortunate time to get interested in pain Mm -hmm. and then my own interest in return to work in New Zealand it was embryonic there were um, very few people looking at how do we help people who've had an injury reintegrate and I just found that um, extraordinary area to work in it sort of tickles the area of me that wants to find out how things are made. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, you can look at factories and, and look at the various jobs that people do, and it's absolutely fascinating how people spend a whole day. Um, yeah, so that's, that's where the fascination came from.
0: Yeah, and, you know, your research, so you sort of mentioned briefly, so your research looked at people living well with chronic pain. and yeah. And I think a lot of people – may think of that as like an oxymoron, you know, like a jumbo shrimp. Like how can you live well when you're when you have chronic pain? Yeah. So in in your in your research, how do you take that and translate it over into, like we kind of said in the beginning, a person working with another person?
1: Yeah. What I what I discovered, so I recruited people who had a range of t- conditions. I started with um, rheumatological conditions, and then I broadened out into less clear cut, like um, hypermobility and fibromyalgia, and so those weirder kind of dis- disorders. And I asked people to get in touch with me if they thought they were living well. So it was their definition of, okay. of living well. And what I discovered was that it's a process, that you don't arrive there, have pain, and the next day you're all fine with it. It seems to take a little while, and that's, that little while is variable. But the, there are three kind of phases to learning to live well. The first part is getting to make sense of what's going on. So what is it that I've got? What's the name of it? What are these symptoms? Um What's my set of symptoms? How do they vary? So I know what my normal is. and and during that time, it's hard for people to think about which plans or or what they want to do. um so that at that stage, all the energy is being spent in just trying to get their head around this new reality, mm-hmm. which is a tough period, and I think we get to see a lot of people at that point, but we don't recognise that perhaps their main concern at that time is what is this thing and what's the impact on me? And they can't quite get to the point of thinking um, what do I really want to do? If this is my reality, what do I really want to do? That that comes after. Mm-hmm. So once people get a name for what they've got, um, and getting a name seems to be really important, and it's very interesting because it it's consistent in the qualitative literature. But it's not when you look at what health professionals say. So when health professionals say, "Give them, you know, that giving a diagnosis is not important," but people living with pain say that is really important to them. So they want to know, they want to know that that label matches with their understanding of what the label means. They want to be able to say their symptoms match with that label, and people will keep on looking to get a label that fits with their own understanding of their, themselves and what the label means. Um, and then they use that as a way of explaining to other people, hey, somebody knows this is what I've got. It's understandable. It's not mysterious anymore. It's it's verified, um, sanctioned, and not in a negative way. It's just saying, yes, people know what this is. It's not something spooky.
0: And what what happens if that goes to the negative? So if someone uh, is having, for example, like chronic sort of widespread neck upper back arm pain, they go Mm. they find out they have herniated discs and it doesn't, their symptoms do match with kind of what the textbooks say, but then they get fixated on that and they can't move beyond, well, I, I have herniated discs. So, is can that be a negative to that sort of first phase of living well? And how do you get someone out of that if they're in stuck in that phase? Am I jumping the gun, or was that next?
1: No, no, that's a really good question because um, because that's right. Uh, in the case of the participants in my study, most of them had, uh, they had rheumatological conditions or they had you know, hypermobility, and that was that was good for them. But they didn't get those biomechanical explanations. Um but what they I did interview a few right at the end and what they found was that they didn't think that explained everything. Which I think's really interesting because most of us think that it does. If we if we give an explanation that, that should fit everything. But these guys who were at the end of their journey said, Oh, they said I had a disc prolapse. Um but it didn't explain why I still felt so tired at night. Why? Why my symptoms changed? I think attached to the label is so much of that explanation of what does it actually mean? What are the? What can we expect from this? What's the prognosis? Not so much the treatment, but one of the factors that was important was to say actually maybe this is permanent. And hearing that this pain is likely to remain was a really important turning point for um for all of the participants. Mm-hmm. So they stopped that search for the the cure and the I got it. it. I got it.
0: So they sort of stopped the search for that external magic cure or pill and perhaps can then start saying to themselves, okay, this is where I'm at, so yep. now I have to move on, or like David says, Butler says, you know, build a bridge and get over
1: it. That's the one. Yeah. And I found that um, people, uh, health professionals are very reluctant to say, maybe this is how it is. Maybe your pain is going to remain. And I guess that's the, the hardest conversation for us to have, because I think for a lot of doctors, in particular, they think that I'm going to remove all hope from this person, Um, and it's not something that they're trained to do. I think allied health, OTs, physios, massage therapists, osteopaths, and such like, might find that a little bit easier because we're inclined to see those people who don't get better, Mm -hmm. and and so we've got a little bit more awareness of the relevance of the psychosocial parts.
0: So So how do you how do you say that to a patient so the patient comes to you how do you say to them you know this might be a permanent or it might be a a a lifelong issue how do you say that to someone without them cursing at you standing up turning around and going to the next person who's going to be like we can fix this not a problem
1: I, I guess the way that I do it is using Socratic questioning. So I ask them, what do, what do you think the chances are of us finding something that's going to take this all away? Especially if they've been, it's four years down the track, which is often the point at which I see people, and they say, and they usually say, I just don't think there's going to be a cure. And so I look so what, then I go over weighing up the decision-making of do you go looking? for the cure, and what does what are the good things about that, and what are the not so good things about putting your life on hold while you look for the cure, mm. and then we look at the reverse, which is, so what if you decide this is what it is, what would be good about that, and what would be not so good, and then I hand it back to the person, where does that leave you, and that's, so I'm not making the decision, I'm just saying you can keep looking, but there might be things that are good about learning to live with what you do have. And there's a a quote that I always bring out from John Wooden, famous New York basketball coach. I think he's in New York. Um, It says, don't let what you cannot do get in the way of what you can do.
0: Mm.
1: And it's the best quote ever to just to focus on what you can do. Mm -hmm. So I think that alongside a, a diagnostic label, we need to have conversations about the benefits or not of trying to go back to a normal. Because the whole process of learning to live with pain is about when pain comes on, life becomes incoherent. It doesn't make sense anymore. Right. And the self, your self-concept, the person that you think you are, suddenly goes. You know, you can't rely on yourself to do the things that you used to be able to do and the expectations that you have of yourself disappear. And for a long time, people are sustained in the search to go back to the person they used to be. But, you know, 5, 10, 15 years later, they're never going to be that person. So it's about saying, who can I be now? And so the process of of, um, learning to live well is about, recognizing I do need to let go of that desire to go back to my old self and look to build this new person. So the first part of this process is making sense. Then people hit a point, usually when they've heard that this is the way it is, um, and they've got somebody that they believe will stand by them, even if they don't follow the rules, <laughs> who who communicates and does those little extra things that show to the person that you're a a unique individual. So every person told me the same thing. So people would get a phone call in between a session from their clinician. Or they'd get a personalised set of exercises that had, these are your ones. Or the person said, I went on the internet and I got this out for you so you know a bit more. Just those little extra things that showed that this person's being thought about and they're not just run of the mill. That was really, really important. And then if they've got both of know now that this is as good as it gets, and they've got that person, and then they've got something or some some drive that they want to be. So I've called it occupational drive. It's showing my occupational therapy background, but occupation is about not just employment but all those things that we do in life that are so important, the daily routines, the roles that we have, the um, the sports and hobbies that make us feel who we are. And so all of these people identified they had something that they really wanted to be able to get back to do that made them feel like they were themselves again. And that was called a decision point or a turning point, and they made a decision, and it was almost... Like they all told me, I just I just decided to get on with it. So just decided and get on with it were two really interesting words or phrases that people use. And when that happened, then they tipped over away from trying to make sense of what was going on and over into the third phase, which is flexibly persisting. Which Wait, is what? I'm
0: sorry. Can you say that again? Flexibly
1: persisting. Flexibly persisting. So that means doing Whatever it takes to do whatever you want, so that means people are saying, "I've got this really important thing I want to do, I'm going to find a way, even if I do it differently, even if I don't do it the same way I used to do it. Um, but as long as so if somebody for example said'm I'm, I'm a really I really want to be a good dad that's that's my whole thing, then they would find new ways to go out to the sports. Um, feel with their kids. They'd look at, um, you know, rough and tumble that they used to do with the kids. Well, they'd do it differently. They'd choose a different form of rough and tumble. They'd find a way to be present for their children. So it was like the values that that the occupation lives out for them, they found different ways to express that. So if you're a rugby player, rugby is really important in New Zealand. Really important. And it's the Rugby World Cup at the moment. But if you're a rugby player, then one of the guys said that he was nineteen and he'd been told you need to stop playing rugby because you've got osteoarthritic knees. And he was gutted because this was his thing. I met him and he was sixty seven and he was driving a concrete truck all day and we're in the middle of the Christchurch earthquake rebuild, so Concrete truck drivers are in demand. So he's working 12-hour shifts. He cycled 10Ks to get to work and 10Ks to get back. So that's a long cycle ride. And he was playing Masters Rugby because he just decided that it wasn't worth living if he couldn't do the things that he loved. So he just decided. He started to play rugby again, started a few games when he was a bit younger, and, and he's just carried on and I, I think that's the the way that he did that was through he came on to be a, a sub so he'd just come in for a few minutes he he was always around the rugby club he was um he was mixing with his mates who were all rugby players. so it was a- ca- a case of going back to those things that gave him meaning it's really cool
0: yeah it's it's pretty amazing and i You know, I was really struck by um, what you said earlier. Sorry, I don't know why I'm starting to cry. Um, (laughs) I may have to edit this out. Um, Okay. Anyway, um, what you said earlier about kind of losing yourself. Yeah. And then coming back and it's, you know,
1: that's hard to do. That's that's the guts of what chronic pain takes from people is all those things that are who you are and they're often the bits that nobody touches. Nobody sees, so what's it like to not be as tidy as you used to be because you just don't have that energy or you can't be as patient with your kids because you're so exhausted at the end of the day. Um, You can't be as... Perfectionist as you really want to be, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I and do. Yeah, like, yeah. It's <laughs> those things that um, that I think we often forget when we're helping people. We think about let's help you move more, but we forget that that time, just the time taken to do those exercises, takes time away from other things that people value. Sure. Yeah. And I guess that's why the part of The process, I think, is saying, who are you and who do you want to be? Who is this person and how can I help you be the person that you really are underneath that pain and distress? Um, And I think that everybody in in pain management, anybody who sees somebody who's got pain, should really be thinking about that. What does it mean to the person? What's the greatest, um, the most important thing? For that person
0: sure like what what is it that you value the most yeah you know kind of going back to that like values-based care um yeah. but it is you know god i had you know pain for for a long time and and that's that was the hardest part mm. yeah is, is, and it still gets you <laughs> yeah yeah no, i know i got i guess i never really thought about it until you said that um but it is hard to sort of let those parts of you go and then, you know, yeah. move on. But, you know, I think that's a little bit of what when I met David Butler, what he yeah. sort of allowed me to do is he said, hey, listen, like this might be the kind of the way it is. So you, I, like he says, like so you build a bridge and you get over it. And you start gradually adding things into your life. Like maybe you can't go out and, you know, carry 20 bags of groceries like you used to and be really Mm. strong but or feel like that's the reason why you're strong, Mm. that you find strength in other areas.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's the – what I find with these people, I've spent years listening to people who find their lives are so empty they're full of full of things. They're full of doctor's appointments. Right. They're full right. of treatments. They're full of waiting for doctor's appointments mm-hmm. and waiting for treatments. And, approvals. And, and waiting just to get better. Yeah, and approvals from insurers and yeah. people give permission for you to do anything. And so life is full, but it's empty. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we're trying what – we, what I think we need to do more of is say how – much is it worth how much is it costing you to try to be be back to how you were Mm -hmm. how much can we add in to make you more you right and it's even now
0: right and 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 you know it's it's almost like unrealistic to think you're going to go back and doing to do all the things that you were doing perhaps before you had these these whatever chronic issues that you're having you know it's Mm -hmm. like the same when I when you get the person who's in there fifties or sixties and they say, Oh, I used to, you know, run sprints and do all this stuff all the time. And you ask them when they're like, you know, in high school. Exactly. <laughs> and it's like, well, things have changed. You know, there, you, you have to kind of look at where you are in the present and say, what can I do? Or what, what do I want to do to make my life as full as it can be? Even though maybe I can't play soccer anymore, or I can't do X, Y, and Z." Like the way I used to, but there are certainly other options that one can can do
1: exactly I, I think it's also useful to ask, so what was it about sprinting and sports that you loved why did why did you like doing it? and how can we build something of that right. and so it's those values again
0: yeah, and I think the example you gave about the rugby player who when he was younger. It sounded to me like you were—he was expressing the need for a community, mm. of of like-minded people to be with. You know, like you said, he would kind of hang out with the rugby players and go in and sub, and perhaps go out to dinner afterwards. So it was—it was that yeah. sense of community that, when you have a, a chronic pain condition, is so important to feel like you still belong yeah. to a group, even though maybe you're not what you used to be.
1: I think that's the carrying that invisible sort of separation. I'm not who I used to be. I feel like I'm not who I used to be. I'm, and yet nobody can see that is so isolating. It's yeah, unbelievably isolating. And to be able to say I can connect, like what you do connect you with other people. The way you dress, the way you happen to tidy your house or not, <laughs> the way that you drive. Uh, you're going to look at other people and you're going to say, I'm like them or I'm different from them or some bits. And that's, that's how we find our way. So just to
0: recap the living well, those sort of steps, one is make sense of what's going on, uh, need someone who can stand by them. Um and, and that flexible persistency. Those are sort of the three steps.
1: Yeah. Well, there's, there's making sense, there's deciding, and then there's flexibly persisting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, persisting is the, the, the living, doing things, and going yeah, back normal right. life. Yeah. Just
0: getting back into your life. Yeah. Well, that was a nice session for me. yeah. <laughs> Hey. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. I was surprised at that. I don't know what I'm like. What is going on? Why am I? But I think it just was you encapsulated everything that I think that I was thinking. When I had those sort of 5-6 years of chronic pain and and mm-hmm. that's exactly what someone in chronic pain thinks.
1: And that's that's why I privileged I'm so privileged to have talked to these these people because I hear people at the first part, oh, none of this is making sense. But these guys had come to the other end and they, not that they were saying that the, that life was fabulous or that they were better than they used to be. It's more that they had learned and they were now being who they could be. And it was such a positive, uplifting mm-hmm. experience, such amazing stories, you know, real We've got innovators, we've got people who are entrepreneurs doing – one woman's a personal trainer, um, and she's working with people who've got um, chronic health issues, lots of chronic health issues, and she's just so dynamic, and that's that's exciting. I think we can look to more pain heroes like that to say you don't have to be this person stuck in a in a really cold, hard, lonely place – you can be connected again. You can be yourself.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's and it's good. what a like an exhilarating place to be once you get there. You yeah, know? it really great. is. Um, okay, so we so getting through the how living well. Okay, how to live well with chronic pain. Now, how as the practitioner do we do we implement this sort of patient-centred approach, this values-based pain management?
1: Mm. That's, um, I guess I start by listening to what the person sees as their main concern. And it's often expressed as, oh, I want my pain to be gone. But I, I want to know, so if your pain is no longer such a problem for you, what, what would be do- what would you be doing? I want to understand their personal theory about their pain so I can begin where the person's at. There's a famous occupational therapy um, or commentator from way, way back in the early, early days, start where the learner is at and move at the learner's pace. So if we take the word learner out, we say start where the person's at and we move at their pace, we've got to understand where the person's at first. So when somebody comes in to to see me, I want to say, what do you think's going on? What are all the things, you know, I know you've heard all these explanations from other people, but what's your theory? How do you make sense of all of this? And then move to what's your main concern? What, What are the things that are really getting in the way of who you want to be? And I, it's not so much what you do as much as who you want to be. From there, it's much easier to start looking at setting um, some goals that are around where the person's at. So if the person says, look, I just don't have a clue about what theory I have for my pain, it's just a whole mess, then I might suggest well, let's start that as, as your first goal. Let's see if we can help you make sense. Of what's going on and I don't diagnose but I can help you understand what your pattern of your symptoms are what your what the effect is so that you know how much vacuuming you can do for example <laughs> before it's a you've, you've blown your energy budget or, um you know what are the specific things that you can't do so we can get some quantification around that And from there you find um, people start to come up with what they really want to be able to do. You know, oh, yeah, I know I can't drive very far. I can only drive, you know, half an hour, and that doesn't get you very far. And I really want to be able to go and take my kids, be a taxi person. Everybody has to be a taxi for their kids. Um, So that's a really cool goal. And and then I build into everything that I do, saying what – Why is that so important? What's so important about it? Um, And that's where you can use the um, importance and confidence scales, and this is from motivational interviewing. So okay if I just talk a little bit about that?
0: Yes, absolutely. That was actually when I asked people for some questions for you uh, Susan Clinton. Her uh, question was: She would love to hear more, uh, hear the importance and confidence questions again. So right. yes, let's talk about it.
1: So when you, when somebody's not moving, they're not engaged, they're not motivated. There's two reasons usually. One is that it's not very important to them. It's in the greater scheme of things, something else is more important, and the other is that they're not confident. They just think they're going to fail. Mm. So when you add those things two together and you build importance and you build confidence, then people can feel that they can start taking the next step. So I always talk about the next best step, not no doing everything, but what's your next best step? With the importance um, rating, so we have a scale from 0 to 10, and I ask the person to, to rate how important is it for us for you to be able to do, um, like drive your car for half an hour, and they might put it at a five. So that's pretty important. Then the next question I'm asking is, so why did you put it at a five and not a zero or somewhere down that end? And that helps to generate from the person all the reasons why it's important. And then the next question could be, so it's at a five at the moment. What would what would it take for it to just shift up to a five and a half? Just a little bit more. So zero is is not important. Ten is extremely important. Just should shift a little bit. Once again, you're eliciting um, the motivational factors, the the reasons that this person thinks this is really important for them. And we know that the more somebody can identify motivational reasons you know, why this is important, the more that they become committed to doing it. So you can give lots and lots of reasons and it's very important and you can then use those as little motivators to remind yourself why you're doing it in the first place. And then the second one is confidence. So it's the same, same scale, zero for no confidence at all, ten for this is supremely confident, I'm no trouble, but do it, no trouble. And then um, you again ask them to rate it, and you again ask them why did you put it there and not a lower number? And what would it take to build your confidence just a little bit? Um, And if at the end of this you find that importance is really quite low, it's maybe still at a 2, and confidence is 10, then you need to move into building up the importance. So you need to work really hard on helping the person identify and strengthen the values that are underpinning that goal. Or you might find that actually it's just not that important, but something else that you haven't talked about really is. So sometimes people will come to me and they've been sent um, by their case manager from the insurance company and they don't really want to be there. They actually what's on their minds is, I really need to get my kid to the doctor or I've got my house payments are just, you know, I'm losing it because I'm not getting paid. And that's way more important than learning to manage pain right now. And so I can help them take the next best step to manage that really important thing that's more important than what I can do and just leave the door open for them to come back to me when they're ready. Um, to to start working on their pain. And while that can feel a bit like, oh, I've lost a client, it actually builds their confidence that you're respecting their values, that you're willing to be flexible. And when they come back, it's like nothing stops them. They're absolutely committed to, because they're ready, to get on board with what you're doing. And I just find that is a really nice approach. With building confidence, I'm looking much more at um, what's given them confidence in the past. Mm -hmm. So what they might tell somebody next door, if they were, you know, neighbour over the fence, how would you encourage your neighbour? What would you say to your neighbour to say you can do it? Um, I might look at other instances where they've overcome something, what did you learn, Um, other challenges, so there's a, lots of ways of, um, you know, have they seen anybody else that's been able to achieve this? How did they do it? So given some really practical um, ways to, it's like building a scaffold around them to support them while their confidence is building mm-hmm. um, and then setting the goal at the right level. And that's why I start talking about, so what do you think the next best step is? So I do those two scales and then I say, So where does that leave you? What do you think is your next best step? And usually that it does it. <laughs> and people will say, Oh, this is what I want. Mm-hmm. And they'll set it and you're away laughing. And and do you ever get the, the I don't know? Yep. And, and so how do you this, deal with an I don't know? This is um there's a good good group of people out there, they're called other people <laughs> so I say other people have said they they want to do XY and Z I list some some goals or I've used a menu approach so you have a um, an a4 sheet of paper and I usually put areas that I know that people with chronic pain are interested in exercise sleep diet medications relaxing and then I leave a couple of empty spaces um, that I say to them, look, I've put some ideas that other people, the infamous other people, mm-hmm. have you?
0: Mm-hmm. Great, that's and an I'll awesome them, idea.
1: Yeah, I left some spaces for you. Just have a look through these and see if any of these um, would be something you'd be interested in looking at. And often that will start them. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can start by looking at what you miss the most about what you can't, you know, things that you can't do now. Mm-hmm. and that, tends to help people pick um pick a direction. Yeah. I mean that's you know, you can you can make suggestions, but generally people come up with your own stuff.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Because I, you know, I feel like sometimes uh, when people say I don't know, sometimes we'll be like, well, you know, think about it and come back and tell me next time, which may not be the best approach, it sounds like. I think it, it, it might just t- might leave them just confused and and reeling so I like the technique of well other people are doing x y and z here are some things do, do any of these fit into your lifestyle or or might this be something you you would like to think about or you would like to incorporate into your life
1: yeah I think that's especially important when when people have had pain for a very long time and what I find is so Many people get stuck in what they call limbo land because they're waiting to, for a cure that doesn't exist, um, and they're being fed by often by doctors. And, and with the most generous spirit, the doctors are saying, "Look, I want to help you. Let's find a cure," and that loops people back into this fruitless quest for the cure that's going to do it. Um, so I like to, to help people in that in that. Time. I check. Have they made sense of their pain? Do they know what their symptoms are like now? What would make your life much more like you? So Mm. it sort of builds. Still, that's a great question. Yeah. What would make your life much more like you? Yeah. Excellent. Because we might not change. We're changing the proportions. So um, I usually draw a picture at this stage. I, I draw a circle and I draw a smaller circle inside. But it's it's a fairly big circle. That's your pain. And the outside circle is life, you. <laughs> and then what I try to do is show that actually we can expand life. This pain may stay the same size, but proportionally it's smaller because we're expanding life. Because oh, life shrinks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, life shrinks when you stop doing I find people stop the fun things first. Mm-hmm. They of stop course. their hobbies. Yeah. They don't want to go down to the pub with their friends. They, they stop having fun. They don't go to the movies. It takes time and energy and they haven't got that. And then they start losing the work stuff. And then they start losing their own self-care stuff. That's usually the last thing to go. And so I'll often start with building in pleasurable activities. Um, let's build some fun. When did you last have a belly laugh? Why? No? How about heading off to some stand-up comedy? I know, a good comedian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, nice. just, just doing little things like that that mean give people permission to have some fun and to put a little bit of spontaneity in. And for lots of people, it's got to be absolutely cheap. They They've got no money because they've got insurance and it's not paying much. So it might be just go buy a cup of coffee or go and sit in the park just for five minutes. Those little tiny snacks um, just to build that sense of um, being more myself. Sure. And that's, I mean, immeasurable in
0: in the long run, right? So now let let me ask you, do you have have a little more time to chat here? Yeah, I do. Okay. Because what we're going to do is we're going to kind of wrap things up here for part one, and then <laughs> people will have to listen to part two next week. So, so everybody, um, this has been such a great conversation thus far, obviously a little emotional on my part, which I'm really surprised about, but I guess that's the way it goes sometimes. Um, so, listen, this is part one with Bronnie. So next week, be sure to come back and, and listen to part two. So, Bronnie, you're, you've got a little more time. We can keep going here. Perfect. Okay, so everybody, we're gonna, we're going to end part one right now. Have a great week. Stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. And then be sure to tune in next week to hear part two.